Julius Caesar was finally ready to put an end to that pesky civil war. His best legions had mutinied while he was away in Egypt consorting with Queen Cleopatra. He had left Rome in the hands of less capable surrogates for about a year, which gave the remaining Republican resistance time and space to fortify the North African city of Utica under the careful management of Cato the Younger. Caesar had had enough. It was time to finish this once and for all. Julius Caesar understood the power of public relations. He knew that sometimes what a thing looked like was far more important than what a thing actually was. He had discovered that his men were afraid to go to war in Africa against Metellus Scipio, grandson of the legendary Scipio Africanus, the one who had defeated Hannibal in the Punic Wars and taken the formidable city of Carthage. It was said that a Scipio was unbeatable in Africa. So Caesar found an obscure member of the Scipio family and put him on his staff. It was December 47 BC, which was not the best time for campaigning. Caesar struggled to find enough supplies for his men and ships to ferry them across the Mediterranean to the African coast, but he managed. When he finally landed on December 28th, he tripped and fell flat on his face. Realizing what a terrible omen it was, he lay flat on the sand and gathered large piles of earth into his arms, yelling so his soldiers could hear, I have you now, Africa. Nice save, Caesar. Other than the clumps of sand Caesar grabbed after his faceplant, the Republican army held all the high ground in North Africa. They had been stockpiling weapons and supplies for months, taking full advantage of Caesar's distractions. Cato had been in charge of Utica, turning it into a fortress that could weather a long siege. King Juba of Numidia, who bore a personal grudge against Caesar, had a formidable cavalry to harass the dictator's legions as they marched through the desert. Caesar was outnumbered and poorly supplied, and he was facing an enemy that had used its time to dig itself into a nearly impregnable position. Caesar didn't have time to wait. He was facing the final battle of a civil war against Roman citizens. The longer it dragged out, the more likely it was that his support back home might falter. He needed to mop this up fast, and Cato knew it. Metellus Scipio, burdened by his famous name and his tens of thousands of well-fed legionnaires, wanted to march out and crush Caesar's army before it had dried off from its trip across the sea. He believed he could succeed where Pompey the Great had failed, catapulting him to the top echelon of Roman heroes, and very likely taking Rome for himself. Cato argued against such foolishness. Trust to time, which withers away all the vigor that is the strength of tyranny. He had been studying Julius Caesar for years. He knew that underestimating him was fatal, and the Republic only had this one chance left. Metellus wrote back that Cato was a coward who hid behind his high walls and begrudged bolder men their glory. Metellus and Cato had been at odds for decades and longer. Cato's great-grandfather, another stubborn nag also named Cato, had clashed repeatedly with Metellus's grandfather, 
no more impressed with the famous general than Cato the Younger was with Metellus. Scipio Africanus had returned the favor, accusing Cato the Elder of corruption. This family feud had lasted generations, to the point where Metellus ran off with a woman Cato was engaged to, and later defeated Cato for election as praetor. The fact that these two longtime enemies were leading the Republic's last stand against Caesar was not a big confidence booster. Cato sent a letter back to Metellus. Coward, I will personally take the legions that I myself marched to you through the desert. I will cross the sea with them to invade Italy, tomorrow, if you see fit. And when Caesar comes back to stop me, I will take upon myself all the force of his army, so that you might have some peace and quiet. Take that, Metellus. But Metellus didn't answer. He was working on his vision for the Roman world after his anticipated defeat of Julius Caesar. The man entrusted with the last remnants of the Republic was busily preparing a purge. One might plausibly think that Cato the Younger would be among the first to go. Once again, Cato was forced to realize that there would be no winner in this war. With Caesar, Rome would have a dictator. With Metellus, Rome would have a vengeful incompetent, surrounded by endless rows of cruel and reckless men clawing over one another, killing and dying. At the end, he finally knew that the Republic wasn't meeting its demise because of these men. The dictators Cornelius Sulla and Julius Caesar hadn't destroyed the Republic so they could rule as kings. The Republic had destroyed itself. Both Sulla and Caesar saw one-man rule as the only way to deal with the corruption and rot at the heart of Rome. Cato the Younger finally realized the truth in those last days of doomed resistance. The Roman Republic had already fallen. He only had one option left. There's never been anything quite like the office of the President of the United States of America. If you're fascinated by the office and the men who held it, the Presidencies of the United States podcast is a great listen. The material is well-researched and engagingly presented, with both the pre-presidential career of each officeholder and how they left their mark on the office. There are also episodes on some of the important other characters who played a role in shaping the American presidency. Check out nerds.historystrainwrecks.com for the presidency's podcast and how to get started on your journey. Metellus Scipio got the battle he wanted on April 6th, 46 BC at Thapsus. Caesar's men were eager to engage the enemy after their ill-advised mutiny and months of preparation. They had given up their insubordination and begged Caesar to take them to Africa, where they promised him total victory. Once inside of the enemy, Caesar held them back, not wanting an undisciplined free-for-all. A trumpeter, against orders, blew the call to advance, and Caesar had no choice but to get on his horse to lead them. Kind of like that time, he fell face down in the sand and recovered by pretending to grab the whole of Africa in his hands. The Republican forces were startled by the sudden attack. 
Their elephants turned around and stampeded through their own lines. There was no restraint at Thapsus, as there had been at the Battle of Pharsalus. Caesar's men enthusiastically slaughtered their own countrymen, even as they tried to surrender. At the end, 10,000 Pompeians were killed to Caesar's loss of only 50 men. The Numidian king was killed. Pompey the Great's sons and Metellus escaped by sea for a final last stand in Spain. Metellus later committed suicide when he was cornered by a Caesarian fleet. All of Cato's careful planning, his advice to wait Caesar out and let time do its damage, his warnings to impetuous generals not to engage the enemy out in the open, was all for nothing. The Civil War was over. The Republic had lost. Cato walked the streets of Utica the night he received word of Metellus's defeat. The stronghold he had built was all that remained, but if the people of the city weren't willing to hold out, then all was lost. He assembled a council of the leading citizens of the city and warned them against retreat. He knew Caesar was more likely to show them mercy and respect if they stood up to him. If he caught them running away, he would probably execute them and burn Utica to the ground. Cato was also aware of how the situation would look. Surrendering would help shore up Caesar's legitimacy. Holding out against him to the very end would prove him to be a bloodthirsty tyrant who didn't draw the line at killing Roman citizens to get his way. If resistance to the bitter end was their choice, Cato would stand with them. If they should face the threatening evil and accept danger in defense of liberty, he would not only praise them, but would admire their valor and make himself their leader and fellow combatant until they had fully tested the ultimate fortunes of their country. And this country was not Utica, nor Hadramentum, but Rome. Cato had figured this out, too, at long last. Wherever he was, there was Rome. The people of Utica armed everyone who could hold a weapon. Slaves were freed by their masters so they could take up the fight. Cato received messages from the Pompeian remnants in the area, promising help with the impending siege. He sent back no reply. A detachment of 300 cavalry remained outside the walls to defend the city, but as time went on, their resolve, along with that of the city's inhabitants, faltered. The horsemen wanted to be done with the fight. They were going to offer their surrender to Caesar, counting on his legendary mercy to spare their lives. As a way to explain their change of heart, the cavalrymen said, We aren't Cato's. That's for sure. Cato sent the 300 to Caesar, asking only one thing, that they not ask the dictator to show mercy to Cato himself. Prayer belonged to the conquered, he said, and the craving of grace to those who had done wrong. But for his part, he had not only been unvanquished his whole life, but was actually a victor now as far as he chose to be, and a conqueror of Caesar in all that was honorable and just. Caesar was the one who was vanquished and taken, for the hostile acts against his country, which he had long denied, were now detected and proven. 
18 centuries later, when offered clemency by the British, George Washington quoted Cato the Younger. Those who have committed no fault want no pardon, he told the British emissary, and sent him packing. Cato closed the gates of Utica and waited for Julius Caesar to arrive. We couldn't keep train wrecks on the tracks without you. Please visit support.historystrainwrecks.com for all the ways you can help keep train wrecks on the tracks. Cato had left the gate to the sea open so that anyone who wanted to flee in advance of Caesar's assault could do so. He was left with only a few loyal supporters, including his son Marcus and a young man named Statilius, who had followed Cato from Rome, burning with hatred for Caesar and tyranny. No doubt Cato saw a lot of himself in Statilius, but ordered the boy to leave the city. Statilius, who most definitely saw himself as a Cato, refused. Cato knew he himself was in no danger. Caesar was certainly planning to show mercy to his great enemy. It was the best way for the dictator to put the shameful civil war behind him and lend the ultimate legitimacy to his reign. Back in Rome, Caesar had granted clemency to Cicero and sent him to the Senate, where the great orator spent his time propping up the new regime. Caesar clearly intended the same propaganda victory where Cato was concerned as well. Cicero, as it turned out, was no Cato either. Cato sent a messenger to Caesar, asking for pardons for everyone except himself. He told his son Marcus about it that night. His son angrily demanded to know why it was right for the son to accept a pardon while the father refused. Cato replied, I, who have been brought up in freedom with the right of free speech, cannot in my old age change and learn slavery instead. He ordered Marcus to spend his life away from politics and ordered him to fight no more for the Republic. Cato asked about the whereabouts of Statilius, wondering if the young man had finally seen reason and fled the city. He was told that Statilius was still in Utica. All he would say to the men who were entreating him to leave was that he would do whatever Cato did. Well, Cato said, we shall see about that. Cato had stopped reclining while eating, which was the Roman tradition. He ate sitting straight up like a slave. In addition to his unshaven face and unkempt appearance, it was another symptom of Cato's mourning for the loss of the Republic. After dinner, he went to his room and asked for a book to be brought to him, the Phaedo. It told the story of Socrates, who, after being condemned to death, calls his closest friends to his prison cell to watch him die. Then he drinks the poison of his own free will rather than be executed by the state. Cato reached for his sword, but it was gone. His friends and his son, suspecting Cato's next and final move, had taken the weapon away. Cato demanded it back. When and where 
without my knowledge, have I been judged a madman. Marcus begged him to live. Cato asked them if they had some new revelation about Julius Caesar, some last-minute information that changed anything. They brought him his sword. A slave came in to tell Cato that the evacuation of Utica was complete. Everyone who wanted to leave was safely gone. Cato worried about the ships, since a storm had moved in, and sent a servant to the harbor to check for any boats that might have been driven aground. Word came back that the danger had passed. The storm was over. Cato picked up his sword and stabbed himself below the heart. Some noise brought his friends and servants rushing into his room. They tried to stop the bleeding and stitch up the wound. Cato reached down and ripped the wound open, killing himself with his bare hands. Julius Caesar entered Utica to find Cato already dead and buried. He said, I begrudge you your death, just as you begrudged me the chance to spare your life. Even though he had ultimately won the Civil War, Caesar knew that he had been beaten. On our next episode, Cato the Younger's death and his ultimate defiance of tyranny turns him into a powerful symbol of democracy and an inspiration for those who needed it in their struggle to assert their rights in the opposition to autocratic rule and in the face of desperate odds against them. Like those guys who declared America's independence from Great Britain and then fought a war to win it. When George Washington huddled with his men at Valley Forge, knowing that they were all that stood between an American Republic and subjugation by a king, Cato the Younger was the example he followed. In defying Julius Caesar, Cato the Younger played a big part in the birth of democracies centuries later. Stay tuned for the conclusion of Stubborn Nags of Ancient Rome.